Let me give you just a primer on this new series called The Questions of Jesus, The Great Questions of Jesus. Questions. Uh, questions can be offered for a variety of reasons. Um, questions can be offered, I, I suppose, the first and most primary way or means of a question is to acquire information from someone else. You ask a question to get information. Questions also can be offered to make a statement. I don't know if any of you come from a passive-aggressive family, but questions often can be offered to make a statement. Someone told me that the most popular thing said at family reunions are, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and some of us are familiar with those kinds of acerbic questions. Questions can be offered not just to make a statement. Questions can be offered to evade. Questions can be offered to mislead. Questions can also be offered to make someone think. And this last form of question, this last form of interrogative is, I think, the interrogative that we'll be talking about over the next several weeks. Great teachers, every great teacher I have ever known, understand the power of a question. The teachers that I have respected their pedagogy or their science of teaching, their manner of teaching most. I've sat in a lot of large room with lots of people. Jeff, you're a professor. David, you're a professor. We have other professors in the room. I've sat in large classes, and you guys have taught them where there are large amounts of people, and you have to disseminate information. And yet, even you as teachers know that the most effective way, especially you guys working with graduate students, is to sit around a, a table and to proffer questions and to provoke to provoke the insights of those that you're teaching, understanding that resident inside of them already is a wealth of information perhaps they don't even know. Great teachers understand the power of a question. Great teachers not only make great statements, and they do. Great teachers not only disseminate great information, and they do. Great teachers ask great questions. Great teachers understand that offering good information potentially increases someone's knowledge base. Great teachers understand offering great questions. Offering good questions potentially increases someone's understanding. And there's a difference between increasing their knowledge base and their understanding. The former, offering great information, adds data. The latter, offering great questions, has the capacity to expand storage space, quotients, and capacities. Good therapists, and I think all of us should have some therapist or spiritual director in our life, at least at some point, good therapists and spiritual direction, directors, and we have some in this room, they ask lots of questions. Often, good therapists and spiritual director, directors, not often, but in almost every case, they offer far more questions than they offer advice and solutions. They assume in their question the answer. They assume more than the answer. They assume something really beautiful. They assume that the person they're asking has the answer resident within them, which is really dignifying. 
They assume that if the person that they're asking doesn't have the answer, because always the answer doesn't exist, they assume something almost as beneficial. They assume that the person that is being asked the question can respond in such a way that is advantageous to them. They assume that, as 1 John said, you have no need that a man, a human, teach you. And that's an extreme statement because we all know the value of teaching, but the Hebrew style was often exaggerated and hyperbolic. And when John said, you have no need that a man teach you, he was simply saying, you, you perhaps may need teaching, but even greater you need to recognize that you have the Spirit of God within you. And you yourself have the capacity to find the answers to life's questions. You don't need a guru. Good teachers assume this. They assume that offering the question provokes, catalyzes the work of God in the person's life as opposed to trying to be that God in the person's life. It can be argued and I think it can be argued well that enlightenment, some don't like that word, spiritual maturity, holiness, whatever you want to call it from your religious tradition, it can be argued that spiritual growth doesn't derive from the acquisition of new answers nearly as much as it, as it develops from the development of really good questions. This week, and this is, a, this is an interesting week, I'm wearing white tonight and I was on Fox News. Think about that. <laughs> Many of the questions I was asked by my conservative interrogator, uh, many of the questions they asked were very difficult for me because I didn't even know how to relate to the question. At one point, Sandy, um, the good interviewer said, do you think people can be good without God? which even that question assumed that people can be without God, which I don't. You see what I'm saying? I didn't know how, to, Michael, I didn't even know how to answer, can a person be good without God? I, I had to reframe the question and, and say to her, I don't even think people can be without God because I pe think people are created in the image of God. And whatever layers of fallenness and brokenness and what we've called depravity or unhealth or unholiness, whatever layers surround that do not undermine the fact that Genesis 3 and the fall is not the beginning of our anthropology. Genesis 1 and the image of God is. So even the question I couldn't relate to. So how do you have a right answer for a wrong question? It can be argued that enlightenment doesn't derive from just accumulating good answers as much as it accumulates when you begin to recognize in yourself, how do I say this? You begin to recognize that you're asking better questions. Questions that there may not even be answers to, but questions that expand you and stretch you. A mind, I'll say it different ways. I have felt my mind in its present capacity filled by answers. And I used to, think that was my religious pursuit or the height of my religious pursuit to take my mind as I knew it Lee and fill that mind with answers but I think even more now I am not trying to fill my mind's present capacity or ram with answers 
I'm trying to expand the capacity of my mind and good questions do that. Questions that immediately you knee-jerk and want to answer but then have to take a pause because not only do you not know the answer, but Cotton, you've never even thought about that question. This is something Jesus understood well. Questions that seek information, questions that are asked because they're wanting to be informed, questions that seek information fill the mind of the one asking. The questions that provoke us to think stretch the mind of the one who's asked. And Jesus understood this. And Jesus understood this even today. My 12-year-old daughter said to me, she had a little Bible, and she said, I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. Where should I start? And I told her, I said, well, start with the Gospels. She said, what's that? And I said, well, that's the four books that kind of tell us the story of Jesus. And she said, okay. And we looked at those, and she said, which of these should I start with? And I thought that was a good question. And I said, well, I, I think you should start with the Gospel of Mark because it's the most pithy, and it's the earliest written, and we talked about that. And she asked a really great question. She asked me, and I don't, I, I don't know where this question came from. Above she asked me, she said, well, what should I be looking for? Wow. I wouldn't have thought that from her. And because I was thinking about this series, I think I appropriately answered her and I said, look for the questions Jesus asked and do yourself a favor and don't try to answer them in the first three minutes. When you read the New Testament Gospels, it becomes obvious that Jesus believed in questions. Again and again, he offered questions, hundreds of them to those that surrounded him. Lee, you pastored 40 years. I guarantee you, you did a series about the questions of Jesus. Absolutely. You can't study Jesus and not see this. Most of the questions Jesus asked were of the contemplative sort. Periodically, he would be so angered by the traditional religious crowd that he would ask one of the passive-aggressive acerbic types. And every now and then, he would even ask one for information. But by and large... The kind of questions Jesus asked were of the contemplative sort. He asked questions that were formed to encourage the people he was asking to search themselves, not just their brain, but their souls. Jesus asked questions that caused people to look inward. He asked questions to cause people to think. He asked questions to get them to not only be honest with him, but even more to be honest with themselves. He asked questions to cause people to look at things differently. Jesus knew that if he offered a person a life-giving question, that often that question was not immediately attended by an answer, but life-giving questions were those that if a person lived faithfully with, they would literally live years and decades growing into the answer an answer that didn't come to them as an epiphany, but an answer that came to them literally as a part of their life that maybe they didn't even recognize they found, but they lived their way into it. Jesus knew that the questions we ask as people, this week in the interview at 
Fox, there was a six-minute segment that was called Spirited Debate, and there was an hour and 20 pod, an hour and 20-minute podcast, and that hour and 20-minute podcast was of, with, with this conservative interviewer and a conservative pastor from the West Coast, um, and, and I, I remember the questions that I was being asked, and it reminded me that the questions we ask are generally more indicative of our thoughts than the answers that we actually give. And, and the questions that I, were, I, I was asked, I, I wanted to immediately mirror them back to the person and say, could you, could you tell me where that question's coming from? Do you even know where that question's coming from? Richard Rohr, one of my favorites, the great Catholic priest, some of you guys, I, I think we've got six or seven guys going out to spend time with Father Rohr in just a couple of weeks, maybe in a week or so. Rohr says this about questions and answers. He says, the ego so demands immediate satisfaction that the ego will almost always settle for a satisfying falsehood than remain on the search for an unsatisfying truth. The ego will almost always, and man, this sounds like something Jesus knew. The ego so wants the itch of control and security scratched that it will, it will demand an immediate satisfaction, closure, final answer. It will satisfyingly accept a falsehood more than remain open and on the search for an unsatisfying and uncomfortable truth. Years ago, I did a sermon series on the 183 questions Jesus was asked. You know what I found? Now, this isn't the questions he asked. This is a whole other series, the questions he was asked by people. He was asked 183 questions. He answered three directly. Think about that for a minute. He would have made a tremendous politician, wouldn't he? But this wasn't politics for him. This was soul work. A hundred, do yourself a favor, just open the Gospels, look through them. This is the stuff I'm telling Nina to look for, not doctrine, not orthodoxy. He was asked 183 questions. He answered three directly. Why was he so evasive? Was he trying to get elected to office? Was he trying to keep everybody satisfied? You know, that's not true. Jesus understood the power of a question and he also understood the limitations of an answer. The fact that Jesus would only answer three of the questions he would ask directly is a very interesting insight into the life of someone who was called the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus asked questions to reposition us. He asked questions to reveal our unconscious biases. He has questions to break us out of our dualistic minds. He has questions to challenge our image of God and the world around us. He has questions to present new creative possibilities. Jesus knew, just like my spiritual director knew just a few mornings ago as I sat with her, 
Jesus knew that we seek quick answers because we want to stabilize ourselves. We live on a world that is traveling at thousands of miles an hour, not just topographically, geographically, physically, but emotionally. We live in a world that is spinning beneath our feet and we seek answers to stabilize ourselves, to give us a sense of control and security, even if it's false. Jesus also knew that what we often want is not what we need. Jesus knew that we often need for our spiritual growth not to be falsely stabilized, but to be truthfully destabilized. If you want to follow people, teachers, like Jesus, you have to be willing. If you're going to pay a spiritual director or a therapist to really dig down, Jennifer, into the real stuff, you've got to be willing to be destabilized. Jesus asked questions. He asked probing questions. He asked unsettling questions, unnerving questions, jolting questions, questions that possess the capacity to transform us if we were brave enough to face them. Jesus led us through questions, via questions. He led us into surgical spaces where literally our souls would be laid bare and real transformative work could be done. Jesus, like all of the great teachers, refused to feed our egos by giving us bullet point answers, creeds, and orthodox positions to make us feel like we had gained some spiritual moral high ground on all the other people. Instead, Jesus, with his questions, would leave us awed more than secured. Jesus' questions would leave us curious more than certain. Jesus questions would leave us humbled more than satisfied. His questions would confront the status quo, subvert the theological norm and presupposition, and threaten every sacred cow. As Rohr profoundly explains, Jesus' questions, listen to this, Jesus' questions leave us betwixt and between where the God of grace can get at us. Oh, man. Jesus' questions leave us betwixt and between where God and grace can get at us. This type of spiritual work, this type of soul-making, this type of Christ-making is so much harder than the memorized answers that most of us grew up with, and yet it's so much more fulfilling. This kind of discombobulating, disconcerting questioning it offers endless exploration as opposed to finish lines. Jesus didn't offer us a religion of answers by which to change other people. He offered us a spirituality of, quick, of questions by which we could be continually transformed. Jesus didn't send us out to convert everybody with our four answers. Jesus sent us inward to be transformed. As someone wisely said, Jesus offered us a way of life built on questions that can't be answered, not answers that can't be questioned. Can I say it again? Jesus offered us a way of life built on questions that can't be answered. And yet so many of us come from religious backgrounds where we were given answers that did not dare be questioned. In Jesus, we find what war 
I love Richard Rohr. He says so much good about this. In Jesus, we find what Rohr calls an answering person, not glib answers. And when we seek the latter, glib answers, we generally get neither. So I'll close our service with this before we go to our update. Great book by John Deere. If you want to get a great book on the questions of Jesus, he lists them all. I just highlighted some, and I'm going to throw these out before we dismiss. You think about them. Tell me the ones you'd like to hear about. Jesus, what are you looking for? Why are you looking for me? What do you want me to do for you? Who do people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Why do you ask me what is good? Why do you call me good? Woman, how does this concern affect you? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? What is your opinion about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Friend, who appointed me to be your judge and arbitrator? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you to drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and visit you? Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or ill or in prison and not minister to your needs? Have I been with you for a long time and you still do not know me? What are you thinking in your hearts? Why do you harbor evil thoughts? Did not the maker of the outside also make the inside? Why do you notice the splinter in your sibling's eye but don't notice the two before in your own eye? If you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? Do not the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brothers only, what is unusual about that? Don't the pagans do the same? And if you do good only to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Do you really want to be well? What is your name? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or pick up your mat and rise up and walk? Do you see anything? Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? Do you see this woman? Which one of those three, in your opinion, was a neighbor to the robber's victim? Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Why do you trouble her? What profit is there if you gain the whole world? Lose your own soul. What would a person give in exchange for their soul? I'm getting teary just reading these. Can any of you, by worrying, add one single inch to your life? Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Are you not more important than the birds of the sky? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath rather than to do evil? Is it lawful to save life rather than destroy it? Who is greater, the one seated at the table or the one who serves? 
Do you think that I've come to establish peace on the earth? Why are you anxious about clothes and the things that you put on? Which one of you would hand a son or a daughter a stone when they ask you for a loaf of bread or a snake when they ask you for a fish? How many loaves do you have? Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Why has only the foreigner come back to give thanks to God? Where is your faith? Do you believe that I can do this? Why did you doubt? Why are you terrified and scared? When the Son of Humanity comes, will he find faith on the, on the earth? If you don't believe the writings of Moses, why would you believe me? Will you lay down your life for me? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Do you also want to leave? Did I not choose 12? Do you realize what I've done for you? What were you arguing about along the way? Oh, man. This is going to be good. This is going to be a good series. That was good, wasn't it? <laughs> this is going to be a really good series. Let's, as our ushers are preparing for the offering, Matt comes to lead us in a final song. Let's just still our hearts for a minute and kind of close our eyes and base in this. Eyes closed and hearts open. Whom are you looking for? Are you betraying the son of humanity with a kiss? Why do you ask me these things? For which of these good works are you trying to stone me? Should I now say, Father, save me from this hour? Woman, why do you cry? Whom are you looking for? My God, my God, why? Why, why, why have you forsaken me? Said God in Christ. The questions of Jesus. We just bask right now in this final minute in just the peace <laughs> the beautiful peace of a religion of a spirituality of a life for we do not bear the burden of all the answers but we enjoy the gift of healing questions we receive that now we open our hearts and minds to these questions Search us in these next coming weeks that we might grow and become the humans you've called us to be. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen.